absolutely. Woo! I always say raise both hands, and I wonder if I'm going to get people that are going to do it. But hey, we absolutely did that there. So as we're going to just say thank you for being here today, I'll mention now, and I'll say it again at the end of the service, if you just raise your hand, we would love to have a, a quick conversation, one minute, just to say hi, and make sure that you know we're here and that we can help you if there's things you could do. And so at the end of the service, when we're all done, we're going to ask you, if you would, if you just raise your hand, to go out this door, and then on, just on the back side of that wall, there's a room. I'll be over there, and I'm just going to ask you to stop by. Give me one minute of your time. We will let you head on out and go home, but we just want to make sure that we get a chance actually to physically say hello to you, and thank you for being here again today. Um, I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and get that out. We're going to get ready. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today. Uh, what I don't remember is if there is some sort, okay, there we got that going up there. Um, I know that you guys know that we have been, uh, Pastor Josh started a series last week talking about spiritual warfare. And he talked about the majority of what you see on the screen last week. But I want to reread part of that so we can get up to speed as to what this is all about. So if you would, you can follow along or you can look up here and you can read the words of Paul where he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. That's where we ended last week. This week, we're just simply adding in the beginning part of the next verse where it says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. These next few weeks, we're going to take time going through and talking about these different components of the spiritual armor, the different pieces of it. The first one is the belt of truth. Now, it's been said many times that truth stranger than reality even. You know, we just, uh, uh, stranger than fiction. I mean, just truth sometimes is, is crazy. Like, we can make things up, but even the truthful stuff is even more uh, bizarre at times. There's some facts I was looking up talking about what are truthful statements or truthful facts. One was this. Most animals do not eat moss because it's hard to digest and has little nutritional value. But reindeer fill up on moss because it contains a special chemical which keeps reindeers warm in the icy Arctic temperatures. For mosses to reindeer, kind of like antifreeze is to a car. Like, you and I would go, okay, but I mean, hey, if God's making things, God could do these things, but I'm always amazed when I find some little weird thing, like we're always told, stay away from that, you wouldn't want to eat it, it's no good, it's going to make you sick, whatever it is, and here's the reindeer, to them, that is like the buffet bar. They're loving it. Again, Truth is stranger than fiction. A lightning bolt can generate temperatures, they say, that is five times hotter than that of the sun. A lightning bolt. One cup, I asked my son this earlier. He's kind of a, a science geek. He loves his stuff. But I was telling him, I said, one cup full of matter from a neutron star, they estimate that it weighed the same, the same weight as all of Mount Everest. You're more likely to be killed by a champagne cork than a poisonous spider bike. Bite. Well, a spider on a bike, probably even less, too. I get that one. So. And then, I love this one here. A thousand years ago, this is one of those, you can't make this up. The, the, the leader of Persia had to make a long journey. 
but he was an avid reader and he couldn't stand the thought of being away from his scrolls for so long on the road. So he had 400 camels loaded up with his 117,000 scrolls. And then he paid servants, I love this, to keep the camels in alphabetical order as they were out on the journey. <laughs> so he knew where to go find what when he wanted it. Now, these facts are true, but you can't really do much with it unless you're going to go win on a trivia show later on today. Trivial facts are these usually don't help us in life. What we're really looking for is truth that will help us, that'll answer questions It'll help us be guided properly. So we want to know things like when our kids are telling the truth. We want to know things when maybe our bosses aren't. We want to know when the news is fake and maybe when politicians aren't telling the entire truth. But even more important than those things, I think, are things of eternal consequences to us that we want to know about. Heaven and hell. Where am I going? How do I get there? How do I treat other people? What are sins and forgiveness, this concept I've heard about? Where will we spend eternity and how can that be guaranteed? Those are truths that we want to know and we can find those in scripture, we know that, but Satan, he doesn't want us to know the truth about this stuff. And, and we know this, and I know this is really basic Bible teaching for many of us, but Satan seeks to spread lies and deception and misinformation all over the place. But that's not what should happen. Jesus himself, though, tells us in John chapter 8 that Jesus speaking, he says, for there is no truth in the devil. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. If you've ever heard that phrase before, this is where it comes from. Jesus himself says Satan is the father of lies. He deceives us about the gospel and about God. He spreads lies about the church and sin and forgiveness. And sometimes they're big, fat, bold lies. Sometimes they're just little, tiny white lies that we say. Or they're just minor deception or twists off of the truth. But because they're not completely true... They're not the truth, if that makes sense. Anything short of the entire truth is a lie. It's not there. And that's what Satan does. And Satan constantly is telling us. But that's not what God wants for us. In fact, God wants to liberate us from such lies. If you go through and you read through later on in the scriptures, you'll find in John chapter 8, verses 32, you'll see, then it talks about that phrase that a lot of us know, talking about that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. We don't want to take that out of context. But we do want to recognize that truth given to us by God will set us free from the lies and the deception of our world. Knowing truth allows us, to, as God said, to intend and how we want to live life and how we want to experience it. So it's for good reason that when we start talking about the spiritual armor, Paul begins with talking about something connected to truth. Because it's a big deal. And he talks about this in the concept of a belt. Last week, Pastor Josh had said, remember, uh, he envisioned Paul sitting in a jail cell looking at a Roman guard. And I think Josh's comment was, I wonder if Paul thought, hey, I wonder if I could take that guy if I needed to. Well, we're not worried about that. But he was looking at the guard and looking at his outfit and started to maybe in his brain equate these things. The Holy Spirit was laying on him. Look at the armor that a soldier is wearing. Let's talk about that from a spiritual point. So he begins with a belt of what does the Bible say? A belt of truth. That's what we're going to look at here today. 
And with each piece that's going to be discussed over the next few weeks, what I would say to you is we ought to consider how that piece worked in the physical world on the soldier, how that spiritual piece worked for us as modern-day Christians, and then really how do we apply it, how do we put it on and use it. So I want to start with this Roman belt concept. Now, I know we all know what a belt is. Quick, do some math. How many belts do you have at home? Quick, just start thinking up real quick here. I need to wipe some of the sweat off my face anyways. So go ahead and, and, and think about it here. How many of you have, I, I was doing the math here, I have five belts at home. I'm sorry, let me take that back. I have five belts at home that still fit, okay? I probably have more that are outside in the garage in a bucket or something, but I have five. I'll say five. How about you? How many of you have more than five belts at home? Okay, the rest of you just haven't counted all there, maybe. I don't, I, but we have belts. We understand what it is. In fact, I was telling my small group, my growth group earlier this week, that I would, they asked me what was going on. I said, I'm talking about the, the belt of truth. And because they were asking, well, are you going to start wearing those pieces up here on stage? I'm like, you better hope I'm wearing more than just the belt of truth. Like, that's it. But I thought, I'm going to go get one. So I asked around, and I asked people, they have a belt of truth. And bless her heart, but our children's director came to me and says, yes, I do. I have one over the thing. So I got it. Okay, I could wear this as the garter belt of truth, maybe. <laughs> the, the, the choker chain of truth, maybe. But there's no way this is going around as a belt of anything, okay? So you all just get to see it right there, okay? The belt of truth from the kids' playset, as we see it here. In fact, I'm going to set this over here. Um, I just, I know that when we have these belts... We talk about it. We know what they are. Most of them are, you know, long leather or made of fabric. They've got a buckle on them. They fasten around to keep our pants up, or we put them around the outside of our outfit as kind of a fashion statement. But that's not what a Roman military belt, a soldier's belt, was all about. We've got some pictures, actually, that we'll just put up on the screen as I describe a little bit for you. These are just a couple of what maybe some of the belts might look like. And I realize they're not ones that were dug up in actual belts or recreations so you could tell that, but a Roman soldier belt, we'll leave this up here for a few minutes for to look at, was probably two to four inches wide, made of leather, covered with decorative metal plates. Many times we see that and have found that as they do some archaeological digs. Some sort of buckle on the end of it, and then it had straps that would hang from it or hooks that would hang on there that would hold other weapons or other needed items that they would be using in battle. Quite often, they would have long leather straps that would uh, have a disc or plates on there. They would hang in front of them kind of like an apron, and, and it looked like kind of an apron just across this midsection here. But I will say this, because growing up, I always thought that maybe that was there to kind of protect this area. But those leather hanging strips isn't going to do anything for protection. And the more I started looking about it and reading into it, most archaeologists and, and historians would say that when they've looked it up and, and is what they've written about and what they read is those were probably more there as a way to display medals, ranking, time of service, ways of service. Like we decorate people with different things. More than likely, those were things that they could put on there. And that makes some sense when you consider that most of that uh, material on there was made of gold and silver and ivory, expensive pieces. It's also pretty well documented that only Roman soldiers were allowed to wear this kind of decorative belt. And most soldiers wore it all the time. Whether they were in uniform 
or out of uniform. It's something they got to wear. And most, again, most historians, when they write about it, what you tend to read out there and believe is it was kind of a badge of honor. If you had this belt, you were part of the elite Roman military. And whether you were in uniform or not, you got to put this on. In our day and age, we carry badges when things are important. A lot of times they're on people. But even if maybe they're out of uniform, they have the badge. Or maybe sometimes if it's undercut, like they have it with them because this is truly the sign, the symbol of I belong to something, a badge. This is what really the belt did for people. And in times of severe military discipline, this is what was written about, they said that they would take the belt away from somebody in the army, somebody serving, the soldier. That if they were being uh, reprimanded for some harsh reason, it would be taken away completely. So again, it makes it seem like this is something they wore by choice because it was something that everybody could see and know who they were. It was so symbolic even that this is written about in New Testament history outside of the Bible. But there's records of Roman soldiers who then became Christians who became followers of Christ. And to prove their conversion, they would publicly remove this belt, military belt of theirs, and dispose of it as a way to prove their newfound allegiance. This was their identity. But in Christ, this came off so that they could prove to other people what they're doing. Now, I tell you all this about a belt because it was a powerful symbol and so it's, it's relative importance as a piece of military armor isn't that big of a deal when we look at it here. It wasn't going to stop most attacks, this little two to four inch wide piece of leather. But what it did is it provided a number of things for the person that wearing it. It would help them hold up the breastplate, which we'll talk about next week, which protected the heart and the lungs. You know, the, they would also wear a helmet. Um, the soldier, they would have a shield. All those things there. But why did Paul start with a belt? And it's because it is really, truly primary in this whole idea of armor. Let me mention a couple things here to help you understand this here. So with the, the Roman soldier, they would wear a belt. Now, most of us see pictures of Roman soldiers wearing kind of this red outfit, which is true. A lot of times it'd be maybe like a, almost a skirt or a kilt type of a thing, and then their armor and, and all that, and, and that would be very true. But those are also most of the time pictures of people that are in good weather. Remember, Rome was all over the Roman Empire. And those that were in cold areas didn't walk around with their kilts on and their, their skirts on most of the time. They would have to keep warm. And so a lot of them would still dress like they would in, in normal wear where they'd have a long uh, robe on, something went over their head and their arms, things that we know is called a tunic. It's just this idea that it's a long, free-flowing robe. It's part of what they had, and then there'd be an outer robe above it. And so really what would end up happening is the soldier would wear that, but it'd be um, stitched all the way down, and so it'd be very limiting, you know, in, in kind of walking. There's only so much you could do and some other things. So during this time, they would have this belt that if they ever needed to get up and get moving or to do something different, they could literally pull the, the tunic up tuck it into the belt and allow them to move on. And the scripture talks about that as this phrase of girding up your loins. You may have heard that before. And so to help us understand that even a little bit more, I want you to watch a short, fun, two-minute little kind of an educational thing on girding up your loins here.
In ancient times in the Middle East, men traditionally wore a robe as part of their everyday attire. The robe is not to be confused with a dress or mumu. It was a practical adaptation from a desire to appear modest and to keep cool in a warm climate. This everyday attire, however, did present some practical challenges. For example, if he had to lift something heavy, requiring him to squat or to bend his legs, providing a strong lifting base, the robe would prove to be a limitation. Or if he wanted to play a game involving running or kicking a ball, the robe would limit his range of motion. Or if he were attacked by a wild animal, When he wanted to accomplish something difficult, these limitations led to the phrase, gird up your loins, or gird up your loincloth. First, a man would reach between his legs and grab the backside of his robe and pull it upward toward his waist. Next, the robe would be tucked into the man's belt, securing it. After a man would gird up his loins, he would have better mobility, like squatting to lift, running in place, kicking a ball and standing in a wide stance defensive posture. Seeing a man who has girded up his loins was a common sight in the ancient world. Although able to move about with greater freedom, he looked ridiculous, as if he were wearing a diaper. This gave way to what we refer to as pants. Okay, so again, I decided I was not going to try to wear this little belt that didn't fit. I also decided not to put a big diaper on stage here and show you that we'd have fun just watching this video. But girding up your loins, that's where the phrase come from, just so you know. It was, like, it was meant to kind of say they needed to get rid of all that excess stuff that was impeding them out in what they had to do so they could tuck it in there, girding your loins. But it was also there, the, the belt, the Roman soldier belt was there to help carry their backpack, their, their pack that they had on them, which would have their gear and their weapons, their sleeping arrangement, their food. And, and, and Pastor Josh has mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I've been out where probably many of you too, where you're out backpacking or carrying a pack. Most modern day packs have the same kind of concept, which is they attach it somehow to a belt. Or there's a belt that straps around your waist to kind of put some of the weight from your back onto your hips so that you're not carrying it all on your back and having a sore back. This was something that they did in the Roman military 2,000 years ago also. The third one, and probably most importantly, is that this belt was there to help keep the breastplate um, really tightly in place so that it would, it would latch in, and they'll talk about this more uh, in the next few weeks, but where it would latch in, it would hook on, and in the back, and it could tie down, and it would be a piece of armor that would be solid to your body, not flopping around as you're walking around, and your sword wouldn't just be kind of flailing around over on the side too because the belt would hold the, the sword and the breastplate in place. I mean, can you imagine otherwise what would happen to a soldier if he tried to go into a battle without his belt? His legs would be tangled up in the tunic, his breastplate would flop around and possibly come up and choke him and prevent him from doing what he's doing, and the sword would always be, where did I drop it or leave it, trying to find it. You can't go to battle like that. So the soldier's belt was incredibly important to the Roman soldier. Paul saw it and he said, let's talk about this. But with a twist on this here, he's talking about us putting on a belt of truth. 
Now, for the Christian, that's an important concept because the belt for the Roman soldier was an easily recognizable sign to everybody that he was a Roman soldier. Like, they wore that thing, I told you, all the time. They didn't wear all the rest of the armor. They wore that belt. Everybody saw it and went, he is an elite Roman officer, military man, soldier. They knew that. This was easily recognizable. But Paul talks about truth. And what I say to us is as Christians, truth ought to be something that makes us easily recognizable as a believer in Christ. It's a characteristic that we ought to have and ought to own. And it sets us apart from the rest of the world. This is not to say that other people and other religions don't have truth. There is truth in our world. But when it comes to Christianity, God's word, the Bible gives us some truth that is not accepted outside of churches, that is not part of the world, not part of what people who think they're in the know or have come up with something else or something even better. It's not common knowledge in our world It's specific to God's word. There's examples that I'll just mention here about truth in Scripture. One of them is that Christianity teaches that life is about serving others, not just about what's best for you and how can you personally get ahead. How can I get ahead? The Bible also tells us that that life is not all that there is, that there's something waiting for us afterward, that we're all going to exist forever. The question really is where? Is it heaven or hell, the Bible says it. Is it with God or without God? Like helping people understand that because we know that there's many concepts in this world that says when you're dead, you're gone and you're done. There's nothing more. That's not a a truth that scripture would teach. Another truth in in Christianity is that God has a solution for violence in our world. But it's not with greater violence as many other religions and people and concepts and nations believe. God's concept here is through forgiveness. So much so that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us from the violence and the sin that is in our world. That's a truth that we'll find in Christianity. And then again, there's the truth of eternal life. Heaven, hell, with God, without God, but that we are going to exist and that we have opportunities to make a choice on that now by accepting what it is that God has done and provided for us. That's all truth that we find in Scripture. There's many, many more examples, and if you have time, you go through and do a study, but we see where the Bible speaks truth, and it shares us with it. But there's another aspect of truth that I want to mention here, and that is the belt of truth is not just about, as I wrote here, knowing the truth and living the truth, but it's also about us telling the truth. For us to also say that we have to speak the truth, that we need to tell what Scripture says to us, that we need to be speaking as Christ would speak and as God would say, that we do what we can to tell truth and do it in love, And do it lovingly along the way. But truth really, truly is an identifying characteristic of a believer. Because if we're always coming back to Christ and his word, that's where we're going to find truth. And we need to hold on to that. As I said earlier, just as the the Roman soldiers wore their belt all the time so that um, they could be recognized, a Christian ought to wear their belt of truth all the time so they too could be recognized by our characteristic. 
So basically, that was the importance of the Roman belt. And then the second one was uh, how the, the belt was to be, uh, re- how it represents truth for us as Christians. The last part here I want to mention to you is just simply something that's just talking about putting on the belt. And if I could summarize it, I would say to you, um, this belt, uh, to buckle on the belt of truth, this is up there, is to give Christ the final word in my life. Again, I'm looking back here up on the screen. To buckle on the belt of truth is to give Christ the final word or the final say-so in my life. That's what I would say is what we need to keep in mind when we talk about how do we put truth on. What's it mean to, to wear this belt buckled around us? Letting Jesus have final authority. I mean, that's a simple way to put it, but what does that really mean? How does that play out for us? I know it's not tough, but sometimes we wrestle with getting to that point. In order to buckle on this belt of truth, we should ask ourselves really the question, who or what has the final authority in our lives? And if I were to ask you that, I think most of us sitting at church on a Sunday would say, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you know, whatever the Bible answer is, because I mean, I'd say the same thing. Like, that is what is supposed to be the final authority. But the question is, is it really? And a couple questions that I want to pose and throw out here to say for all of us, is this really uh, true, would be this. When it comes time to making your final decision on whatever, do you base it on your feelings? Because if you do, then what you're really saying is, it's what you personally desire at that moment. Because that's what the feelings are going to be. If when it comes time for your final decision, you're basing it on another person, then what you're saying is that your boss, or that your friends, or that your spouse, or that your kids, or maybe even your parents, you're doing what they want to do. Not to say obedience isn't important to us, but, but when you're looking at something to say, this is my final decision, or I'm doing something on there, you need to evaluate, am I doing it strictly for those other people? Because you can do things that's in alignment with God and, and Scripture, but are you doing it for them aside from the Bible? If so, you don't want to do that. You might say then, in my final decision, if you're basing it on your culture, then what you're saying is that whatever society currently thinks, does, believes, acts, says, whatever, that that's what you're going to go with, then you're allowing culture to dictate your authority and your decisions. Or maybe this one, which I hated writing down, and then I erased it, but then I put it back in because I realized I have to hear these things too. And that is, when it comes to my final decision, am I driven by my own personal comfort? Am I driven by the fact that I want to do what's easiest and allows for me to have the least amount of resistance and trouble moving forward? If I'm looking at all of those, and that's what I'm doing then I'm probably not using Christ as my final authority. But if I could keep coming back to, and there used to be a phrase, you know, the old, what would Jesus do? And I know some people say, I'm so tired of seeing that, and the bracelets and the necklaces and every bit of, I get it. But the question itself can't be dismissed. What would Christ do? What would he say to us? How would we do these things if we truly are giving him the final say-so? If you always want to make the right choice, I wrote, then you need to consult the right person. If you always want to know the absolute truth, then you need to talk to the person who is the author of truth. Who wrote truth? Who gave us truth? Who is truth? Not only talk to Jesus, 
Not only pray about this, but then be obedient to it. And if you say, honestly, and, and this, is, this is seriously no judgment at all, I just would say, if you say right now that I'm already doing that, then I would say, then you need to thank the Lord. You need to say, thank you, Jesus, for that, but ask him to continue giving you spiritual discernment. Because at any point in time, that can change. Keep asking for it. But, but if you're not quite there, you're like, yeah, I kind of do some of those other questions and not always asking the Lord, then I would say to you, here's two quick filters that I think that you can think things through with to help point it back to um, the Christ being the final word. One of them is when we talked about wearing this belt of truth, I would say we need to look at God's word as one of the filters. Like, here's the thing. I know that it sounds obvious, but there are many times I probably have done this. In fact, I know I have. You may have done it. You may know people who've done it. And that is, they'll do something, they make a decision about something, but they, um, uh, they sometimes justify it by almost saying, well, that's what the Bible says or what Jesus says I can do, and, and that's going to be okay. And, and I would say to you, I don't think that's the right answer. Just because you throw Jesus said it's okay onto the end of a statement doesn't mean that it really truly is okay. We have to be careful because sometimes we just don't know and we throw that on there like, hey, that's the spiritual catch-all and that's the I got you and like zip it. You can't say anything more because I said Jesus said so. That doesn't make it so just because you say that. And so I would say to you, keep in mind that our not understanding the scripture and Satan's continual deception towards us to move us away from the scripture can cause us to say things about the scripture that are not true. And so quite honestly, the only filter that you can ever come back to on is this something from the Word of God is to get into the Word of God to know what it says so that we can verify it. Because I do know this. I've been taught this from some of you guys since I was super, super small when this belt used to fit, okay? Like, way back then, and that is this. God's command, God's prompting on our hearts right now is not going to be contradicted in God's word. What he tells us now and lays on our heart now is not going to go against what his word says. God is always going to be consistent. So don't tell me that it's God said, and you look, and it's not. He didn't change what his feelings are on things or his commands are on things. But we do need to know Scripture. And that is one of the biggest filters for any of us. The second one, I was looking for a name for it. And I'm just going to call it the gospel test. And, and hear me out on this one. It's not that it's, these principles are found in the gospels. But because I wrote down four of them, I'm like, oh, it's kind of like the gospels. I'll remember. There's four of these. Here's some simple, easy questions to ask along the way. And here's where I think these come in handy. And that is, you know, we always have that time in our life where we're like, oh, but the Bible doesn't say not to do something. Or it, or it really says over here, but there's that big gray area in the middle, right? There's that part where it's like the Bible doesn't tell me not to do it, so I can conclude that I can somehow. Like we're trying to justify gray areas. Sometimes it's okay. I would just simply tell you when we're looking at it, maybe some questions to ask ourselves about the gray area. Because again, just because it doesn't say no doesn't mean it's right. So when we're looking at that, I would simply say this. One, does it honor Christ as Lord? A second one, does it increase my, my fight against sin? 
A third one is, does it increase my love for the Savior? And a fourth one is, does it strengthen my faith? And I don't mean you have to remind, remember all those and write them down, but I'd simply say, when it comes down to the gray area, maybe just asking a few more probing questions like, is this really moving me closer to my relationship with Christ? Or is by doing this gray area, is it really going to kind of move me away from my relationship with Christ, but I'm justifying it because the Bible doesn't say not to do it. Does that make some sense? Like for us just to look at it and say, we need to do the right thing. And if we want to do the right thing, then we need to talk to the right person. Jesus, look in the right place, God's word, and ask the right questions. Is it moving me to be more Christ-like? So when it really comes down to the end of it here, this tiny belt, which again, I'm not going to try to, to put on here. But I want you to know that this little belt might seem insignificant in the big picture of the armor of God. But it's super important. It's the base that they always put down and put on so that the rest could be built on. So that we could make sure that we are wearing the belt of truth as Paul intended for us. I know some people, they're hearing this today and this concept might be new. They're not understanding all that or maybe they have questions and I would simply tell you, if that's you, let us know. This concept here today, the spiritual armor, is something that we're talking really to fellow believers about, um, things that we ought to wear so that we can stand strong in the battle, the spiritual battle that's going on. Remember that thing behind the scenes? We can wear this and we can succeed because the armor's from God, first of all. So it's not that it's going to be faulty and give out on us. We just have to wear it. Wear it right and use it. But if you're not sure about that or you're like, I don't even know about God yet or about Christ yet and those things, talk to us. There may be a card in front of you you could fill out and let us know saying, can I talk to a pastor about some of this? Because you just want to begin a conversation. Or you can always, again, just contact us here at church. We'd love to talk to you about it. But for the rest of us, the first part in the armor is very unarmor-like as it looks, is to put on the belt of truth. With that, I'm going to ask you if you would close your eyes. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you again for an opportunity to talk and just share from your word and to talk about how this makes sense to us. Because sometimes these phrases in scripture might seem a little... Um, confusing to us. We don't wear battle armor so much and we don't get all these things and how there's a spiritual word connected in with a physical attribute. Lord, help us to understand and to talk about this these next few weeks, but also that we can look at it here today concerning the belt of truth. Allow us, Father, to always come back to you as the basis for our truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.